This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. It is Wednesday, which means the two Sams are joined by Chip Gibbons, the policy director at Defending Rights in Dissent. Though that doesn't matter because everything you're about to say on Chip Chat is your own thoughts. You're yeah. not you're not representing anybody or anything other than yourself, Chip. I'm not even sure I want to take responsibility for the things I take on Chip say on Chip Chat. So you well, know. That, that's that's fair too. Uh, everything said on this podcast is disavowed by everybody on this podcast. Please, I hope when I'm like you know like a Republican senator from like Iowa, they don't they don't play these things and like look at what you said. It's like oh, I don't know any Sams. What are we talking about this week, Chip? We are talking about the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I don't know if either of you, Sam or Sam, know this, but I'm not a big fan. Yes, we're heard, we've heard of the FBI. Uh, so earlier in the month of April, there was this OIG report that found out the FBI had not followed its own rules to ensure the accuracy of its application to the FISA court. Uh, this was a bit of a big news item for a couple for a little bit. Unfortunately, most of the people who are really seizing onto this are people in on the right, who it's kind of ironic because they've always been sort of the champions of the FBI abusing people's rights. Uh, if you go back to when people tried to reform the FBI in the 70s, even the sort of libertarian or populist right was very much like, no, don't take away the FBI's power to spy on communists. What will we do then? But because Donald Trump has and his associates have, you know, gotten themselves in some hot water with the FBI, uh, a number of conservative commentators are treating them as as a villainous force, which they are. But, you know, they're a villainous force because they're part of like a 150 year program in this country to spy on like left wing dissent, not because they're like cultural Marxists who are upset that Donald Trump is a super patriot. Um, which is, I, which I, I mean, I sometimes like, I, I, I'm looking for information on like Pfizer, or the FBI, and I accidentally like stumble on some like weird right wing message board or blog. I'm like, that's literally what they think that there's like a treasonous deep state conspiracy theory against Donald Trump because he's just so, so patriotic. Um, which I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not buying it. I, I don't see it either. I don't really, I don't see it. You guys haven't seen enough Ben Garrison cartoons. I have seen plenty of Ben Garrison cartoons, unfortunately. I am, um... Oh, the, they never, the one where they have the bar of soap and he has to write soap on it. So we know it's a soap bar. That was a favorite of mine. But, um, but no, anyway, so, so this, um... This report is actually quite disturbing. So after the uh, inspector general reviewed the FBI's FISA surveillance of Crossfire of uh, Carter Page as part of the Operation Crossfire Hurricane, for some reason the FBI names its investigations after Rolling Stones song lyrics. I'm not really sure why, but you know, least offensive thing they do. Because they're uh, a bunch of rock dads. <laughs> So, 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 so they go to randomly review uh, 29 FISA applications and sort of look at the sort of files that are designed to support them and ensure their accuracy. Uh, in four of the applications, 
uh, they they cannot find the file. So they only can review 25 of them because four of them are just missing. The inspector general is not even sure they ever existed in, in, in the one case. And, and of the 25 they review, they find, you know, sort of, they find errors in all of them. So that's 100% error rate or just surprisingly missing. And, and just to go back in time, I mean, so FISA stands for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Uh, wiretapping in this country has a very um, interesting history. Like right now, we all sort of accept like wiretapping is just a thing the government can do. But up until the late 60s, it was extraordinarily controversial. And it seemed like for a while it was going to be illegal for, for, for the government to do. Um, but brief, little bit of brief history. Uh, in the early 20th century, the Supreme Court decides that wiretapping doesn't constitute a search uh, under the Fourth Amendment. They reverse later on, but they initially describe, decide it's, it's not a search under the Fourth Amendment. Um, and then Congress passes a law saying that you cannot, it's a crime to divulge information found that, that's um, intercepted as part of an illegal, as part of a wiretap. Um, and the Supreme Court interprets that law to apply to law enforcement, even though it mentions nothing about law enforcement. So, hey, that's good. Um, but what the Justice Department and the FBI decide is that because the law says you can't divulge the information and it's not admissible in court, therefore it doesn't prohibit them from doing, doing wiretapping for intelligence purposes. So like spying on Martin Luther King because he is um, associated with communists in the mind of J. Edgar Hoover is is not running afoul of this statute because they're not conducting a law enforcement investigation. They're not going to submit the evidence in court. They're just gathering intelligence. Although you can reverse engineer investigations pretty easily. Yeah, you can. Um, but I mean, sure, you can do that. And that that's a really big problem. But but my point is, is that it creates this sort of distinction between law uh, wiretaps for the purpose of prosecuting people and wiretaps for the purpose of quote unquote national security. And it's really very perverse, but in the sort of law enforcement wiretaps, you have more rights because there's a criminal, it's a criminal procedural matter. Whereas if we're just, you know, spy on you to like see who you're meeting with, if you're hanging out with communists, it's, it's somehow considered less odious because we're not subjecting you to criminal uh, prosecution. We're just, you know, spy on your politics. But eventually the Supreme Court reverses course. Uh, they find that wiretaps um, do, do invoke the Fourth Amendment. Congress passes a wiretap statute as part of the Omnibus Crime Bill of 1968. Uh, but it's very clear in the bill that it's not explicitly that it's not meant to, meant to limit any presidential authorities to engage in wiretaps for national security. A few years after this, the Supreme Court hears a case called, bizarrely enough, United States v. United States District Court. Uh, the federal government was challenging the United States District Court uh, before the Supreme Court. And it's, it's over this claim about whether or not there is a domestic security exception to the Fourth Amendment. And the Supreme Court rules very clearly there isn't one. But then they also say we're not ruling on if there's a foreign intelligence surveillance 
exception. We're, we're silent on this. Like, it's not just like they don't mention it. They expressly say we're not ruling on this. So the whole uh, world of whether or not you can get a, uh, you need a warrant or with what standards to to get a, a wiretap for foreign intelligence surveillance is very much an, an open question. Most of the circuit courts who hear the issue actually disturbingly rule there is such an exception. And eventually Congress passes in 1978 the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which creates a secret court that approves foreign intelligence surveillance wiretaps. And these wiretaps are, are the standards for getting them are very much uh, lower than in their criminal context. Many people might argue they're unconstitutionally low, but but like I'm saying, it's it's very much sort of an, an open question, and it creates this whole sort of dual track system of surveillance in this country, or at least solidifies it, where there's one track of surveillance for criminal prosecutions, um, and they have higher standards, though not that high. They have some oversight, and they result in sort of you know prosecuting people under the law. And then this sort of broad intelligence gathering, there's less oversight, you don't need to have a law enforcement purpose, but it's supposed to be very, very limited. And, you know, one of the whole reasons why there's supposedly lower standards uh, for, for foreign intelligence surveillance is that it doesn't implicate the rights of U.S. persons, or it's not supposed to, but we know it's frequently used to spy on U.S. persons. So that's sort of a, a non-existent distinction. So... Fast forward to 2002, um, and the FISA court publishes one of its opinions for the very first time, and it's rejecting a request from John Ashcroft to engage in sort of, um, sort of, to some sort of surveillance request they reject that John Ashcroft makes. And, and in this court uh, ruling, that's, like I said, the first ruling the FISA court publicizes it mentions that the FBI has just been straight up um, putting misleading information before the FISA court. Uh, it references that in September 2000, this is the Clinton administration, pre-9-11, pre-Patriot Act, you know, pre-George W. Bush, pre-sort of like heightened, you know, worry about terrorism, that the FBI admitted that it had misled the FISA court in 75 applications. Uh, per the New York Times, most of these applications involve surveillance of support for Hamas, uh, so probably targeting the Muslim or Arab American community. We know that sort of the criminalization of the various Palestine, Palestinian political parties as foreign terrorist organizations has served as a pretext to sort of spy on and harass um, Muslim and Arab civil society in this country. You know, a lot of the big, you know, post on 11 terrorism prosecutions like the Holy Land 5-1, you know, don't involve support for Al-Qaeda. They involve support for Hamas. So this immediately is a big red flag for me, but one that has just never been pursued. But as a result of this, uh, the FBI puts into place new uh, safety procedures or procedures to address this issue to make sure their applications are supposedly scrupulously accurate. And what we found, these are called the Woods procedures, named after, I guess, the agent who came up with them. And what we saw in the Carter Page uh, OIG report was that the FBI did not follow these procedures uh, correctly. We now have a random sampling of 29, um, 29 FISA applications 
four of them we cannot find the supporting materials for. And the other 25, it turns out the FBI did not uh, follow the, the Woods procedures. And I believe the Justice Department has found even more FISA applications where they just were not accurate. You know, in all of these cases, they always say the accuracy doesn't change the fact that there was probable cause to support these wiretaps, which maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But, you know, there's a lot of, like, surprise and shock here, supposedly. But I don't really know why we're surprised. Like, what review of the FBI has ever found anything but concerning behavior, right? During the Bush years, there was all these OIG reviews showing that they were abusing national security letters. In some cases, they were submitting um, fake claims that they had an exigent circumstance when there wasn't one, and they would get the national security letter later, and they never did. Another OIG report of Bush-era conduct found that, you know, they had these phone companies in the FBI office with them, and they had employees for the phone for the from the phone companies with all of the, the phone records on them. And that was to sort of expedite the process of accessing the, the records after they got a national security letter. But the FBI was just walking over into these open office spaces with their telecom buddies and being like, hey, can I take a sneak peek here? And, you know, and even going back to like the Clinton era, 75 false uh, FISA applications, you know, in, in, in the early 90s because of the FBI's um, abusive investigation of Ronald Reagan's opponents, opponents of Ronald Reagan's foreign policy, which was conducted as a foreign intelligence investigation, not as a domestic investigation, uh, found, raised quite, there was, the GAO had to do a report about whether or not their international terrorism investigations, which international terrorism, unlike domestic terrorism, is treated as sort of a, a foreign intelligence national security issue. And it found, you know, first implications there. It's like any review of like the FBI's use of its international terrorism or national security or foreign intelligence powers repeatedly turns up like very serious, widespread and systemic problems. But we always forget all about that. And somehow we're surprised all again. Like I've seen very few articles reporting on the current OIG findings that mention, you know, the 2002 revelation that the uh, FBI was doing all of these false or misleading FISA applications that resulted in the FBI's own procedures being implemented that they're now violating. And, and I, I want to be clear that like what the OIG found the FBI violated are the FBI's own self-imposed rules because the FBI continuously gets to impose rules on itself without you know meaningful external checks. And obviously the FISA statute presents a statutory scheme for what the FBI is supposed to do. Title III, the criminal wiretap statute, the same way. But, but I mean, a lot of the FBI's rules are self-regulating and it clearly is not working. I, whenever I'm thinking about cop work and the FBI, it's always, um, it's always a balance between whether or not this is just straight up sloppy work from stupid people or people who are lazy or if this is like nefarious work from, it could also be people who are lazy and are just cutting corners, but want to get the desired result, no matter the, the consequences. Where, where do you weigh on this spectrum of, of sloppiness versus just like these guys don't care and there's no, doesn't seem to be any consequence. I mean, this whole story seems to be an indictment of oversight, considering that there's never been a report that the FBI has ever complied with procedures. 
I mean, I, I was listening to one of the first oversight hearings after the Carter Page thing came out. And I think it was Louis Gomart, like the really asinine man from Texas, like I was a judge and I always knew the FBI agents were telling me the truth when they applied for a warrant. So I'm shocked to find out. I was like, what? Like, like you were a judge and you just assumed the FBI agents were always telling you the truth. And now you're shocked to discover in this one-off instance that is totally isolated and separate from anything else, the FBI was not scrupulously accurate. You know, it, it, it's just so pathetic, right? I mean, everyone knows we could do a timeline from like 1908 to like yesterday of known instances of FBI abuse and like there'd be no, there'd be no like years or decades where there aren't any. Like it's been continuous. It's a continuous problem. But we always treat each new revelation of the FBI fucking up as like a isolated incident that we cannot believe happened. And I don't know how many times over a hundred and ten year period you can keep doing this, and people are still shocked this is happening. But we, we don't treat it as like 110 years of abuse. We treat it as, oh, the FBI failed to live up to its normal high standards because it hates Donald Trump because he's a super patriot. I don't know. I'm not very optimistic here, unfortunately. Chip, are you um, – I, I found myself um, I didn't finding answer yet another reason to get disappointed at Democrats, which is that – I feel like since they've taken back control of the House, they haven't really done um, a great deal, try a, a great deal of work trying to hold hearings on, on like the authoritarian right wing nature of law enforcement in this country. I mean, you'd think they would at least be interested in uh, digging around about, you know, the rise of of, of the the, next, the new rise of fascism and sort of uh, how white nationalists operate within um, local law enforcement and stuff. Uh, am I off base here, or are you? I think you're right on base. Well, I mean, they've the done the opposite, right? Democrats have done the opposite. When the FISA bill came up a few weeks ago to renew a lot of the surveillance authorities, and this is a slightly separate issue, but Democrats <laughs> sided with with Attorney General Barr on not putting in place stronger reforms. Right now, the fight is over reauthorizing Section 215 yeah, of yeah, the Patriot true. Act. Uh, that fight is still ongoing. Um, they keep sort of kicking the ball in part because there is a bipartisan rebellion. Like Usually when things are bipartisan, they're terrible. But in, in this case, there is sort of a bit of a bipartisan rebellion against some of the broad surveillance powers. There's also a bipartisan consensus of just letting the intelligence agencies do whatever they want. It's important to remember- These authorities have expired, though, that we're talking about because the House passed a bill that was supported by the Attorney General Barr that was- watered down it didn't have very strong reforms on 215 and where the other one is like the lone wolf and the the roaming wiretap um which aren't as controversial but uh and meanwhile though in the senate you had more bipartisan senators there didn't want to pass this watered down bill so they passed a short-term extension so that they could debate this longer and come up with stronger reforms, but the House didn't pass the short-term extension. No, there is a temporary, there was a temporary renewal of 215 for 70 days. 
that was a clean re-off yeah. uh, that was considered a victory for privacy advocates. And the fight about 215 renewal is not over yet. Um, we're going to be having this fight more and more. It'll be interesting to see with the pandemic what happens um, because there's not a real uh, inclination to do anything other than which I think is fine. Like the pandemic is is sort of the top priority right now. But the fear is that they could just sort of sneak through a clean reauthorization because nobody wants to talk about it with with the pandemic going on, um, which would be disturbing. Uh, but it, it seems like this is a good time to fight against a clean reauthorization of, of 215 and try to get in some of the. Um, and for people who don't know what 215 is, let me explain it to you. Business records provision. It's the any tangible things provision. Um, it allows the, the government to collect any tangible thing um, and business records, like you said. And the, uh, the NSA used it as the justification for one of the Snowden surveillance programs and metadata collection, right? The initial fear was that if this passed, the FBI would be looking at our library books, which would be very disturbing. Um, but in fact, was used to justify bulk surveillance of of, of our metadata, uh, which is even more terrifying than than people people had in, had thought of. Yeah, so um, maybe don't maybe don't reauthorize two fifteen if you think that the FBI is not being scrupulously accurate in its FISA uh, applications. Maybe you should not reauthorize two fifteen, and maybe have a real hearing on this subject. And and to go back to Sam's point, I mean. There are FBI documents that were leaked that showed the FBI is deeply disturbed by the infiltration of local law enforcement by like white supremacists. Why doesn't Congress have a hearing on that, right? Like yeah. not, not to follow the Democrats' footsteps and make the FBI the good guy here, but like the FBI is like legit disturbed by white supremacist infiltration of local law enforcement and how that means they can't like share certain information with them because you know, if they share like information about an informant or an undercover uh, officer, the police will likely give it to the white supremacists and actually in endanger the FBI agent. Like that's a huge problem. I would say that you don't have to be like a radical critic of the FBI to, to recognize why is there no hearing about that? Um, and, you know, we have all these like FISA revelation hearings and it's just the Democrats being like the American people are with you, FBI, the American people are with you. And then the Republicans being like, I can't believe the FBI has for the first time in history broken, broken the rules and are you know, on Donald Trump. And it's like, you know, if the, if the Democrats really wanted to to do something, they could say, OK, Let's have a larger exploration of what the FBI is doing, because we know the foreign surveillance intelligence powers aren't frequently being abused by like wealthy white businessmen who have somehow found themselves involved with Donald Trump. It's mostly like Muslim and, and Arab Americans. It's it's, you know, and the domestic surveillance is being used against left wing groups. And the Democrats could say, like, OK, let's actually explore and, and hear what's going on with this. But instead, they just sort of want to shore up the FBI because they have somehow, you know, think that legitimizing the FBI helps them delegitimize Trump, which. So to, to conclude all this, Chip, what you're saying ultimately is 
Carter Page innocent? I mean, they didn't charge I mean, gu- guilty of being a, a supporter of Trump and therefore, you know, someone who has a value system that's completely perverse and guilty of being an, a dumb asshole. But other also, than that, not a good Ph.D. student, apparently uh, his Ph.D. was, I believe, twice rejected. Yeah, but it's, I think it's important to recognize that this guy ultimately who was his face was plastered all over MSNBC for a year as like the face of the Russiagate scandal as someone who like might flip on Trump, who the FBI has dead in the water. They didn't have any of that. He also was, I believe, an asset for another intelligence agency, yeah. right? That came out. So like part of the reason why he's doing this supposedly suspicious behavior is that he is feeding information to what was clearly the CIA, uh, which the FBI, I believe, concealed from the FISA court. So, Well, uh, I think getting into confidential informants and how the FBI and intelligence community uses them uh, is a whole nother topic for another chip chat. The CIA has a confidential informant and the FBI is concealing the fact that this guy is a CIA confidential informant from the FISA court in order to justify spying on him is like remarkable. Like, I mean, talk about dysfunction. I mean, this goes back to are these people like nefarious and evil or just incompetent? And I, I think it's both. Yeah. I think like the targeting of the Muslim community, I think the targeting of left wing groups, I don't think you can say that's anything other than systemic, political, religious and ethnic bias that is like deeply hardwired into the uh, FBI throughout its history. And it's part of the fact that like, you know, we are a country that has tried to suppress like left wing dissent. We have like 700 military bases around the world. Um, but then the stuff with just Carter Page and just stuff like that, that's just sheer incompetence, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's at the end of the day, it's like homework. These agents have to put together this application and they they fuck it up. This is one of the most probably closely monitored FISA applications. You know this is going to come out likely. Like, why aren't you doing a better job? And if they're not doing a better job with Carter Page, like wealthy white business associate of the pre- soon to be president of the United States, then you know the applications for like random uh, Somali immigrant accused of being, you know, too too pro Palestinian is probably not that accurate either. It's probably less accurate. Yeah, pretty safe to say. Chip Gibbons. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing another chip chat this week. Oh, thank you for inviting me to the chip chat segment. Uh, it's always an honor to be invited to the segment that is named after you. I, I hope to continue to be invited to, to chip chat. You will be. Just better hope uh, we we don't we don't hear back from uh, Chad from Chip Abernathy. <laughs> I don't know who that is, but I hope well, you'll hear back from him. You'll find out if they respond to our emails. Yeah, you might find out soon enough, Chip. I will be out of a job. <laughs> <laughs>